Welcome to another episode of Culinary School Stories, the weekly podcast that is dedicated to sharing the stories of people around the globe whose lives have been influenced, impacted, touched, and or enriched, for good or for bad, from their culinary school experience. Hi, my name is Colin Roach and I'm your host. Thanks for joining us today. You are an important part of this show where we ask the question, what's your culinary school story? So now, without any further delay, let's meet today's guest. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Culinary School Stories podcast, a proud member of the Food Media Network. And if you have not yet subscribed or following the show, please do so. It is free, and we would love to have you as part of our community. You can subscribe or follow the show through your favorite podcast apps, such as Apple Podcasts, which comes standard on the iPhone. It's already there. Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, lots of them out there, whatever one you choose. Or you can do it through our website at www.culinaryschoolstories.com which is also where we store all of the past podcast episodes, as well as our guests' bios and contact information. So be sure to check out the website. And while there, sign up for our monthly newsletter. That way they'll have early access to the episodes, be up on all the news, and get a monthly update from us. So now I'd like to introduce today's guest who grew up on a family farm on Prince Edward Island, Canada, and worked as a lobsterman in his early years. Becoming a chef hadn't even entered his mind until after working in some of the local restaurants and resorts, which got him interested in cooking professionally and led him to his enrollment in the Culinary Institute of Canada. Going to culinary school was the start of his culinary journey, which has led him to where he is today, which is an executive chef and corporate culinary ambassador. With that said, I would like to introduce and welcome Chef Jesse McDonald to the show. Jesse, how are you? Welcome. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Colin. So uh, I know we've got a lot to get to, but let's start right at those early years. Uh, how was it? Tell us about growing up on your grandfather's farm and you know being a lobsterman with mom and dad. And tell us you know, start, set the tone there and that's kind of sets the bedrock from what happened later on. Yeah. So, um, you know, I had a pretty, I will say modest upbringing, you know, um, grew up in rural Prince Edward Island, which is, you know, Canada's smallest province to begin with. Um, I consider myself very lucky for the upbringing that I did, um, receive and what I was exposed to. Um, Personally, you know, it's, uh, you know, still this day and very much as a youngster, I enjoyed sort of being outdoors, being outside sort of in nature, given that we were sort of off the beaten path as far as where our family home was located in a very small seaside community. Um, it was just a very natural upbringing. And although at the time I didn't necessarily realize it, um, food was a huge part of our lives. Um, our home was located on the edge of my grandparents' large family-style farm. Um, so there was lots of, you know, mornings as a youngster spent, you know, with my grandfather, you know, mending fences and chasing chickens. Um, but as well, my father and mother were third-generation lobster fishermen. Um, my grandfather before them had also been a lobster fisherman and sort of passed on the family business to my parents. Um, so I spent a lot of time on the water as a youngster and Often uh, now as an adult, um, sort of my upbringing in my community and sort of my surroundings 
of that, uh, you know, rural PEI upbringing that I received really has turned me into the chef and the person I am today. Um, originally, I wasn't necessarily interested in food at the industrial level. Um, kind of happened very naturally for me, you know, one summer, um, I was still very much involved in our family operation in the lobster boat, as well as, uh, you know, helping my grandfather um, through the different seasons um, with his, you know, crops and animals. But I decided about middle school age, um, fairly early on, I think I was in seventh grade that I wanted some extra spending money. So pretty innocently, I did as a, a lot do and uh, found myself at a local resort applying to be a dishwasher in the kitchen. And that summer, um, like I said, it was the summer after seventh grade. And I'll always remember that um, as sort of a personal aha moment for me, um, getting exposed to the industrial kitchen and, you know, the professional chef world that I never was exposed to um, a great deal prior to sort of showing up at that resort and looking for a job. I realized that I was a little bit further along than my peers in understanding food as a whole. And a lot of that came from that rural upbringing, you know, um, it was a, you know, a couple times a year by season, our grandfather would take, you know, a couple animals to uh, be processed and we would spend, you know, Saturdays, all the families around, um, you know, grandparents kitchen table, wrapping meat, uh, dividing it up and heading home with your sort of local box of, you know, premium raised farm quality product. And, you know, I was spoiled. I didn't realize until I got into the industrial food world that not everybody lives that way. Right. Not everybody has that luxury to be exposed to those premium products at such a high level. And like I said, that's where sort of uh, that aha moment, for lack of a better term, happened for me. And I really, from that point on, started kind of meshing um, the industrial food world with my sort of natural rural upbringing that exposed me to so many of those products that are um, celebrated here on Prince Edward Island and in fact give us a little bit of our reputation and our identity here on the island itself. Now, was that farm that your grandfather had, was that a commercial farm? Was he selling the products or was it more for the family? Or? Yeah. So, no, it was more of like a family style. So, obviously, there was um, some larger sort of winter style crops that would be sold for monetary value, um, you know, to other additional farmers, you know, large hay and grain crops to feed animals. Um, but the livestock that was raised was basically almost exclusively for um, self-sustainment. Um, so it was divided up amongst the family as a means of saving money, uh, obviously, but also preparing for, um, you know, the quite harsh winters that are present on the coast of Prince Edward Island. And at one time, you know, we're talking, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, we didn't have the supermarket style um, grocery stores that we have today where you can get, you know, avocados 12 months a year, right. you really had to prepare all your products to survive through the winter for lack of a better term and have all the different uh, food qualities of our food group that uh, maintain a healthy lifestyle, right? So it, it very much was a part of, you know, day-to-day -day life for our family. I tell a lot of people that Growing up, food farm to table wasn't a fad for me. It was a lifestyle. It literally, you know, right. um, influenced the way that we lived. So it's essentially all that I know. 
I know that your island too is is they call that you know Canada's food island. Yeah. And I was reading, and I, I didn't really realize it that farms represent about half of the total land area on Prince Edward Island. So farming was the way of life. Yeah, and and food here is funny. Um, you know, PEI is a little backwards in the sense that often when you get um, when you showcase some of the premium products that are available here on PEI in other centers and larger areas across the world, whether, you know, we're talking about Toronto or New York City or Paris, the high-end premium products are enjoyed in really high-end restaurants over, you know, white tablecloths. Here on the island, it's actually the opposite, you know, the sort of poorer end of the population or the um, more rural livers are often the ones that are having the premium products. They're catching the lobsters, they're raising the animals, they're harvesting the potatoes. And these products are enjoyed um, by a means of celebration and bringing people together. You know, lobster dinners often happen outside over newspaper on a picnic table because it's such a part of our culture. It's not meant to be, food isn't meant to be unapproachable. Food is for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, caveat kind of rings true to day-to-day life as far as food production uh, here on PEI goes as an industry. Yeah, I can relate to that because I grew up in Maine, so it's very similar. Yes. And I did lop- I lobstered myself as a youngster, but even the local lobstermen, they wouldn't even eat lobster, probably because they were tired of it too, but really because it was worth so much selling it. Why eat it themselves when you could sell it and you know bring that high price, that return? Is that what you found? Exactly. Yeah. And often um, it, it's, you know, overexposure to anything is going to take the allure off. Um, you know, we get celebrated for our lobster catches all over North America and the world here in Prince Edward Island. And not that we're not proud um, of it, but sometimes we forget the luxury of that fishery because it doesn't exist anywhere else the same way as it does here. It's very prevalent, but, you know, there's only a few areas of North America that are catching lobster in a large amount that can be sold commercially, right? So it's very unique and very special. Now, the big crop there, I guess, is potatoes, is the farming. Yeah. For seafood, it's well known for the mussels too, right? Mussels and oysters. Yeah. So yeah, mussels, oysters, um, and clams are very popular as well. So a lot of shellfish and then a lot of bivalves. That's sort of um, where our seafood tends to... um, lean toward right we don't have as much um fish uh varieties as some other locations and that's kind of twofold obviously um with our location we're a little bit north um in the atlantic as compared to some of our other locations so some of the population of fish that want to hang out in slightly more temperate waters aren't making it quite up to our um area of the atlantic The other thing that influences um, sort of PEI's ground fishery is that our um, two bodies of water that surround Prince Edward Island, the Gulf of St. Lawrence and the Northumberland Strait, are actually offshoots of the Atlantic Ocean. So they're slightly shallower um, in the grounds around Prince Edward Island than you would find in the Atlantic Ocean between Europe and Canada. So that's why you see a lot more of the shellfish and sort of bivalve family because they thrive in sort of shallower water conditions where there's more um, food source kind of floating around at the surface, Mm -hmm. um, which is a great environment for bivalves as they're filter feeders. They, you know, 
ingest uh, the water with the nutrients in, in through one of their filters and the, um, you know, sediment that they can't turn into food, whether it's sand, rock, um, that kind of gets expelled. So that's why you see such a uh, reputation of shellfish on PEI is because the locations around the island are almost perfect for production. And perfect for lobsters. You know, they're crawling in there and that rocky exactly around there. So let's talk about lobstering. Now, you've been third generation and you would do it and your your mom was involved in this. Yeah. So you could tell how, how was that a family? And then I understand, you know, there was your dad passed away. You could talk about how that influenced you maybe moving on in your career. Yeah. So um, actually, it was my mother's father um, who had gotten the lobster business from his uh, grandfather before his father before sorry my mother's grandfather so it was actually my mother's side of the family that started um, the business so growing up my mother and her siblings um, my aunt and two uncles were all exposed to the lobster fishery as youngsters and all of which also helped um, whether it be long term or short term in the family business in the boat so my mother is someone that has um, a great experience in the fishery. And uh, so she and my father fished together, um, which, as you can imagine, um, in business terms, it's if you have a business where you only have, you know, one full time employee and you pay that employee and then they go with their check and buy the groceries that you also get to eat. It's it's a little bit beneficial. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So my parents were very astute uh, business people in that way. Um, you know, essentially all the, the money that was produced from our lobster season was uh, stayed in, within our family because the two of them were working together. And then that gave them a bit more flexibility in the off season as far as workload goes um, to obviously pursue other work in other areas, which they both did. Um, but not forcing them, like I said, because you're not taking a portion of your cost and paying it out to an employee that's separate of to your own. They had a little bit of a benefit to that. Now, did you have siblings that were lobstermen too that would do it or just yourself? No. So I'm actually an only child. So a um, little bit of a unique situation. What did they What did they say when you decided you weren't going to follow in their footsteps? Yeah. You know, it was... Um, it was something that they always were super supportive of. Um, they didn't expect me to take up the mantle just because it was in the family for so long. And it was, you know, a little bit of a um, decision that I had to make on my part, you know, still to this day, um, it's something that I identify with and miss. But uh, sometimes, you know, life throws you a curveball. You have to make the tough decisions. Um, so when I decided that I wanted to attend culinary school, Obviously, the Culinary Institute of Canada was high up my list being, you know, um, in my home province, but having the reputation that it did across the country. Um, And what differentiates uh, the Culinary Institute from other colleges across the country and really influenced me to come is their mix of hands-on learning to theory classroom. You know, students spend four to five days every day hands-on in the kitchen at a different rotation. Um, you know, experimenting, learning recipes, working with uh, different chef instructors. So when you finish your first and second year, you really got some palpable experience um, from the college itself. So I attended, I, you know, graduated high school and decided I wanted to go into the cooking industry professionally. Um, enrolled at the Culinary Institute of Canada in my first year. And unfortunately, um, early on into that first year of my culinary school education, um, 
my father ran into some health issues and unfortunately passed away in the fall. Um, obviously not something that you want to go through, especially at, you know, that age at 18, you're just sort of starting to spread your wings a little bit and, and get your life as an adult, um, started and, and kind of built. Um, so it's definitely something that, uh, you're not prepared for, but you know, you kind of deal with the hand you're dealt and do the best you can. Um, one thing that, and I've talked to different people over the, the years, um, coming in and out of the culinary institute i can't uh talk enough about how much the establishment here at the culinary institute of canada but as well as the individual instructors really supported me to ensure that i was getting what um what i needed to ensure i wasn't going to lose any of my training or potential um technique or guidance or set up for my course um they were all available to do whatever they could to make that easier on me which was super important because at the time um here on prince edward island it was 2008 the lobster industry as a whole was on a little bit of a downturn so with my father passing away my mother and i were in a little bit of a tough situation where we had to determine, are we going to sell this business that's on the downswing right now where we're probably not going to get the true value of the sale price? Or are we going to try to figure something else out in hopes that it bounces back and then we can look again at maybe going down that sale road, right? So um, being the sort of stubborn person I am by nature and I uh, credit sort of my parents and my, my grandparents for instilling that in me. Um, I decided, you know, I said to my mother, we can, between the two of us, fish this fleet together. We can make it happen for as long, as many years as it takes till the business bounce backs to ensure that we're not going to undersell um, that business, right? To ensure that we get fair value. So I managed to, uh, yeah, balance going to culinary school. Um, so culinary school existed my first year, I was in school from about September till the end of April. The month of April, we would get ready to go lobster fishing. May and June, I would go lobster fishing for two months, six days a week. Usually the that summer, the end of May, I started my internship at the Inn of Bay Fortune uh, with Chef Michael Smith. And so I completed lobster fishing the end of June that season and then completed my on-the-job training between my first and second year of culinary school from uh, June until October and then returned to school for my second year of culinary. So a lot, uh, a lot of my plate there during that first year, um, kind of balancing my culinary school education as well as my family business. Um, with my mother, but uh, I can't, you know, speak enough about the support I received in the building to make sure that I could balance both my school education and ensuring that I was doing what I needed for my family at the same time. That's great that they could accommodate that. Now, did it delay? Did it delay your because it's a two year program, right? Did it yeah. delay it any? Did it would take longer, or could you make it no. up because of that summer break? I was uh, I was actually able to anything that I missed during the sort of initial period, I was able to make up in my first year. So I actually was able to graduate on time um, with my professional excellence certificate, which is awarded to um, students that sort of exemplify um, that next level um, training here at the college. So, again, 
wouldn't have been able to get that accolade as well as all my um, necessary training done had I not received the you know s- support that I did um, while I was here in first year. Let's talk about the school now for a minute. I know you work there now, so let's yeah. we'll get to we'll get to that. Let's think about it back when you were eighteen, getting out of high school, and you're going there because it's yeah. going to be different as you go back there as a faculty. Yes. What was what was going through your mind, and tell us how they you know acclimated you. They went through orientation. What were you feeling? How how was the classes? So if someone's listening and it's changed now, yeah, they can see what is the. What is the mindset when you go to culinary school? And if you have those fears and nervousness, which is natural, how do you dispel those and get right on to the you know thing at hand? Yeah. So um, obviously attending sc- culinary school with some, um, you know, industry experience prior to enrolling. Um, when I first, you know. Um, is that a requirement at the school? Because some schools require experience. No. So it's not a requirement, but we have a certain amount of uh, available seats. Per student, uh, usually uh, depending on the year, it's around 100 to 120. Um, COVID has uh, reduced our class sizes slightly, obviously, just to ensure that our social distancing can be maintained while in the building. But in a normal um, school year, we have, you know, around the 100, 120 seats. So if and it happens on, you know, most years our program is full, um, there are occasions where they will consider applicants. based on previous experience if the program is looking to be full. So it just depends on the year. Now, is there dormitories there or, did you, or does everybody commute? Yeah. So uh, there's both. There's dorm uh, dormitories that you can live in in the city um, at the Culinary Institute that are located at our other um, location in the same city because the Culinary Institute is a branch of Holland College, which is a provincially accredited college here on Prince Edward Island that um, is responsible for training all the trades people across the province. So that's cooks, electricians, carpenters, um, okay. welders, you know, there's different Hall and College institutions across Prince Edward Island that focus on different areas of trades. So there are dormitories uh, available to live in in Charlottetown. Some people do commute. Um, there's a real mixed bag um, with students. You kind of have the traditional student from you know, further away that comes and lives in a dorm and has the full university experience. And then we also, because we are um, a trade school, have, uh, you know, lots of instances where our students may be coming back as a second career, or they may be a little more mature, and they're commuting in because they've already established, you know, a house and a family and things like that. So it's really kind of a mixed, uh, mixed bag as far as what a, the average student looks like here at the Culinary Institute and at Holland College. So you were uh, uh, right out of high school. So you were like what they would call a traditional student then? Exactly. Yeah. So I, I went the year after I graduated. So I was 18, um, sort of more traditional. I went out and so didn't live on campus, but I did live on my own with a roommate um, in the city to kind of, you know, get the full experience. That was uh, what I was ready for, you know, to kind of move out and, and immerse myself in, in the uh, school experience. Um, so overall, I mean, with everything leading up to um, enrollment at the college, I was super excited um, just to get in there, to learn from some of the instructors that were here that had such a reputation behind them. And then, you know, also um, I was really excited to begin building my career as a chef. You know, I had some skills from my upbringing. I had some exposure 
And I really had a clear focus and I think a goal, um, goals plan set for myself. And with the way that the school set up, they really just um, encouraged you to, to meet those goals by whatever means necessary or you could. So obviously kind of start in September on your first year, get initiated, kind of do the standard orientation, get comfortable in the school, get your uniform assignment, essentially, um, you know, lockers, all that kind of housekeeping stuff. Pretty early on, they began what they call knife skills. Um, so you spend a week in a kitchen with one of the chef instructors learning nothing but basic cuts that we use in the industry every day, you know, mm-hmm. large dice, small dice, brunoise, batonet, um, sort of your standard classical cuts and develop um, of knife skills kind of begins almost initially when you um, begin at the Culinary Institute here. And then after your knife skills, and as I said, there's some other additional classroom classes um that you are required to take prior to entering the kitchen kitchen you know computer essentials business communication some sort of more theory based courses Mm -hmm. but then after you know two or three weeks it's you're into the kitchen with your first rotation with your first chef you're going to spend 20 to 24 days in that rotation with that chef um and then you're going to get a chance during first year to um rotate to five or six different um, chef instructors and rotations depending on the year and the offering at the college um, for that particular year at school. So what was the dynamics like then? Because you were a traditional student, you had some maybe second careers, older students, you had, what was the the mix there? Was it more female, male, young, old? How did that all mesh going through it? Yeah. So I would say it was a pretty... Um, it was a little all over the place just because there was a good portion of students like myself, male and female that were right after their post-secondary education in high school were um, going to an establishment such as the Culinary Institute. Um, there was also a fair number of, you know, second career students um, that had kind of come back that maybe on the more mature side There was also a good um, influx of international students as well that attend the Culinary Institute Um, with it being Canadian accredited. um, It's well known in some of the other, um, you know, culinary hotbeds um, in North America and and South America and beyond. So there was a really big eclectic mix is what I would describe it as is, is different cultures, different age groups, different genders. Um, and there wasn't really one that was more prevalent than the other. There may have been a little bit more um, maybe male dominated student body. But I think, you know, if we fast forward to present day, that's almost gone to a 50-50 split. And I think at that time, it would have been well on its way to that 50-50 split, just not quite there yet. Yeah, it seems to be the trend in most of the culinary schools yeah. that I talk about. It was more male-dominated. It seemed the females went more for the baking and pastry, but now it's it's pretty much even. Up. Yeah. Great. So you got there. What was, what was your best class? What was your first one? Because that was probably how it set the tone. And then did you have a favorite going through it, or did you have a worse class? <laughs> yeah, my first class uh, was Cold Cuisine um, with Chef Linda Hellingman who is still a chef instructor at the college um, currently. She was a huge inspiration for me. And um, she was someone that I really related to because coming from the industry, I had some experience in working with a chef 
or an executive chef um, that was operating a kitchen. And very quickly in the first rotation of Chef Linda's um, cold cuisine class, I felt like this pace and this environment is something that I am used to and comfortable with. It's mimicking industry almost exactly. Um, and that sort of allowed me to take the knowledge that I already had, kind of apply it to what we were doing in that first rotation, but then also obviously began the process of picking up the trained techniques, techniques, sorry, here at the Culinary Institute and kind of beginning to build um, the, you know, your repertoire as eventually the, you know, the next generation of chefs. So that was very exciting. Um, as far as a favorite class would go, that's hard to say. Um, obviously, I enjoyed all my uh, culinary classes in, uh, you know, while I was attending the Culinary Institute. I think the, um, I think probably the class I felt like I got the most skills, um, palpable skills that I still use to this day that I may have not been exposed to pre-culinary school is the first and second year butchery. Um, you know, often the, uh, way that the food in food uh, world was going at that time, when I first entered culinary school, you know, the pre-portion vac seals, you know, proteins were kind of all the rage in a lot of ways for, um, you know, saving time and labor costs and, and, you know, having consistency. But when I was attending culinary school, they were still very much focused in the art of butchery and the sort of old school preparation of understanding how to break down your primals and subprimals. And I think both um, my first year and second year butchery courses that I took um, were probably the rotations where I gained the most skills that I hadn't had prior to entering culinary school and probably continue to use those base skills in the industry daily, weekly, monthly, right? Um, I think that those would probably be the classes I enjoyed just slightly more than the others. Like I said, I enjoyed them all, but that's probably where I got, like I said, the most palpable benefit. Now, could you speak to uh, Red Seal or the Red Seal certification? Because that is something that's more unique to Canada, and we have a lot of listeners all over the world. And that certification, and, and is the school, you automatically get that, or is that something you apply for while you're there? Maybe you could talk about that. Yeah. So, um, with the Red Seal accreditation, it is um, overseen by individual provinces. However, they do all work in cohesion with each other. So that means that the requirements are very similar um, from one province to the next in a lot of cases. So here on the island um, and while attending the Culinary Institute, you would begin the process of your Red Seal. So you would begin to be registered as an apprentice. And your culinary school hours that you are spending in the kitchen are actually able to be um, reflected toward your red seal um, hours that you need. There's a couple different ways that you can do or receive your red seal accreditation. Um, the you know, first way is registering as an apprentice. The second way is by challenging the test. Depending on province, um, the hours needed for each differ, but consistently, if you register as an apprentice under a chef, you need less hours than if you were to challenge the test outright without being registered as an apprentice. So 
when you graduate culinary school here um, at the Culinary Institute, you've already gotten 2,000 to 2,500 kitchen hours that are put toward your red seal, as well as you've been registered as an apprentice and you should be able to sign off all the skills on your block one and get your block one test finished before the end of second year. So you're well on your way to getting your accreditation. You just need to accumulate the necessary hours by the province you're located in as per that province's internship officer. Hmm. Now, what about job placement when you get out of the school i mean there's internship you mentioned that earlier an externship that you have to go out and work and then yep. what about the job career and placement after graduation can you talk a little bit about that yeah so obviously we had touched on the internship which takes place between first and second year of the program here at the culinary institute you're required to work uh 600 hours in that internship period um, it's just to spend some time, obviously in industry, sharpening your skills before you're coming back into second year. Um, once you are finished and graduated, Holland College has an incredible, um, an incredible percentage of grads that find work directly after graduation. And in a lot of cases, students that are finishing up their um, second year of the culinary arts degree have already lined up their job for when they finish the program. Um, we have an on-site internship, um, internship director, Susan Shaw, that helps, uh, the students, rip, or, uh, you know, get placement at a, um, establishment of their choosing. And also that same sort of, um, assistance is offered to our second year students that are heading out, um, into industry if they want some assistance in setting up interviews and, and locating maybe a restaurant fit that may be right for them. There are a few different avenues in the school that the students can get some additional support and ensure that they are receiving what they need. Good, good. So as a executive chef yourself and a graduate and a teaching there at the school, in your opinion, do you think there is a... Um, a value with the culinary degree with the industry up there? Do they give them a, you know, a, a, a higher leg up to get a job out there? Is that kind of like expected from industry or no, you could do it the school of hard knocks? I would say that you can do it both ways. Um, what I, for me, what I see when I see, uh, you know, someone come in and, and apply for a job with a culinary arts degree what that says to me is this is a career. This isn't a job. Um, when I see someone come off the street that has 10 years of experience from, as you put it, the school of hard knocks, it's not that they aren't going to be incredibly skilled mm -hmm. and it's not that they're not going to be able to do the job. But my feeling is that that's just what it is to them, a job. And it's not a career because if they had planned to stay in this line of work long-term, you would think that you would go receive the training to give yourself the best opportunity to get the best job possible to support yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a, a personal opinion of mine. Um, you can definitely be successful without attending culinary school, but I think if this is going to be a career of yours long-term, you're personally doing yourself a disservice by not treating 
it as such, treating it as a career and getting the uh, professional training that comes along with the food industry. Yeah. The reason I asked, that's why I, I found because for my PhD, my dissertation was, can't remember the exact name, but it was Canadian professional chefs perceived value of formal culinary education, and its impact on industry success or something like that. It was 10 years ago. Yeah. So, but because I couldn't, I'm a member of the American Culinary Federation, but I couldn't get access to our members. I don't know why. And it's a whole bunch of politics involved. Yeah. But I went, I, I reached out to the Canadian uh, professional chefs, you know, up there, the Canadian uh, Chefs Federation. Yeah. And they were great. And they gave me the emails of all the executive chefs out there. And I did surveys and all that. And I found that, as you mentioned, and so I guess it's still holding true that they do give a little bit of a, you know, a layout for someone because of those reasons that they're serious. They've invested the time. This is something long term. And I even found in, at least in my research that they even pay higher. Yes. Hey, someone coming out of culinary school, entry level or whatever, they're going to get paid higher and advance quicker than someone that goes up the other route without the formal education. Yep, for sure. And and like I said, it's not in saying that you can't um, eventually move up the ladder by doing it through just experience and working in a restaurant. But again, with attending culinary school and a culinary arts program, you're laying yourself the foundation and the skills to be successful in your career in the future. So again, if I have two identical resumes come across my desk with two different names, experience is the same. Everything is almost the exact same. One has a culinary arts degree. One does not. I'm probably leaning toward the professional that has chosen this as a career and not the one that in my mind is potentially still on the fence. Yeah. And you learn the the language, the the verbiage, the every, you know, the you know, so other things involved there. But as you mentioned, it's certainly possibly be successful. There's many people that are successful out there that run great restaurants that don't have any yeah. culinary background, you know, formal uh, education in there. But, you know, it's exactly. it seems to be easier and recognized like any probably profession if you've gone and gotten that education. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to take a quick pause right now and ask you, the listener of this episode, to sign up for our newsletter and mailing list. I left a link in the description, or maybe even easier, just to go to www.chefroach.com slash contact. That's chefroach, all one word, dot com slash contact. Then just go to the bottom of the page and sign up for our newsletter. It's free. Then once you're signed up, you'll never miss out on our latest news, announcements, episodes, contests, course information, or exclusive deals. So go ahead, sign up so you can get all of the information and more through the periodic email updates. And don't worry, you can always unsubscribe if you don't like it. The link again is www chefroach.com slash contact. So go ahead, do it now. We want you to be part of our community. And if you don't do it now, you'll probably just forget by the time this episode is over. So just hit the pause button right now and take the 15 to 20 seconds to get it done and then come back and hit play. We'll wait for you, I promise. Okay, hopefully you just did it or you've already done it in the past, or at the very least, you'll be doing it very soon. Your support of the show and the network is very important to us, and we thank you in advance. Alrighty, so now back to the show. 
Great. So you got out of school, you got your degree, you've, and then you tell us a little bit about your career and how you got to where you are now. Okay. Um, so graduated from the Culinary Institute of Canada in the spring of 2010. Um, so I actually would have left um, that spring and went directly to work at a local um, golf course as a sous chef. I would have taken my first sous chef job, um, assistant manager of the kitchen at a place uh, here on the island. So I did that initially right out of school. It was a seasonal property. So it closed um, in October. It closed, yeah, in the fall, sort of mid-fall. So I did, uh, yeah, I did that right out of college. And then I packed up my bags and I headed to Guelph, Ontario that fall. Um, I spent about six months in Guelph, Ontario at a sous chef at a Italian restaurant. Um, again, great experience, a larger center for myself, a little bit more culture. Um, I was trying to sort of spread my wings um, and get that exposure in building my career. Again, being from rural Prince Edward Island, sometimes that culture we miss out on a little bit. So that's what I was kind of seeking. I spent about six months there um, before I left and went to Europe on a trip. Um, I was gone for about three months. I did uh, two stages, sort of longer term stages, one at a hotel in Paris and the other at a small seaside restaurant in Nice, uh, in France as well. And then um, also sort of a, a homes, I almost call it like a pasta bar style, homemade, um, everything from scratch, open concept kitchen in Italy. So I did that for three months, obviously not straight out. I did some traveling as well, but I got some experience um, working in some of the European kitchens for free. Mm -hmm. um, again, I was, you know, in search of some of that culture um, that was present in, in some of those older cities that have, you know, 500, 1,000, 2,000 years of food history and culture as opposed to 100 or 200 years. Um, so that was a great experience for me. Sure. I kind of, like I said, spread my wings a little bit and explored some of the European cuisine. Then I returned home. It would have been the following summer back to Prince Edward Island. I took the sous chef job at the resort that I began my career washing dishes at. Oh. Um, Rod Brunel River. So full circle. It had been some time since I had been there. Uh, I think it was six seasons or so since I moved on. So in six years, I left, got my training, education, and returned to the large uh, resort operation multi-unit food and beverage manager as the sous chef. So needless to say that my uh, growth in the kitchen was happening pretty quickly. I spent um, three summers as the sous chef at Brunel and also, um, so that was a seasonal property. And then it would close in October and I spent um, the off season for those three years during the winter at the new Red Shores racetrack in Racino here on Prince Edward Island, Charlottetown as a um junior supervisor cook two was uh the title that they used there so that's basically what i did for three seasons um by the end of those three years i had enough hours to write my red seal accreditation so i was just turned 23 um and i was able to write for my red seal um and was obviously successful and a week after i received my red seal accreditation i was offered the executive chef position at a sister property of Rod Rudinell River, um, which was just about to go through a three and a half million dollar renovation, complete revamp, rebrand, and rename the restaurant to a 
farm to table local focus and the company felt like I was the person that they wanted to give the opportunity to build that restaurant. So at 23, I packed up my bags again and headed to Miramichi, New Brunswick, where I spent four and a half years at 1809 Restaurant and the Rod Miramichi River Hotel. Um, had great experience there. I really uh, feel like I sort of found my stride as a chef, really started building um, my reputation and sort of myself stylistically there. We were able to um, take our rankings on TripAdvisor. We were for over two years, the top ranked hotel on TripAdvisor in the province. Wow. As well, we were featured as the uh, Tourism New Brunswick um, Miramichi area flagship restaurant for um, the food tourism initiative that was launched while I was there. So needless to say, in the four and a half years, I kind of came in as a newcomer, built a new restaurant kind of from the ground up. And by the end of my time in New Brunswick, I was on the advisory board for the food tourism initiative as a whole in the province and was assisting in rebuilding the um, dormant culinary federation that um, did not exist anymore. So as I said, I got, I got a lot of opportunity in Miramichi. Um, we were able to do some great things and, and had some great successes there. After about four and a half years, I felt like I had, you know, kind of done all that I could at that location and I wanted to kind of take my next challenge. Um, so that was at back to Prince Edward Island at the sister resort to Brudenell River, which I was the sous chef at. I took over the kitchen and became the executive chef and corporate culinary ambassador for Rod Crowbush Golf and Beach Resort. Um, so that, again, a sister property of ours, um, consistently Crowbush, the links of Crowbush Cove, the golf course that is also on the property that the resort sits on is ranked one of the best golf courses in the country um, by Score Golf Magazine. Um, it, it has very well represented as well as um, some very unique um, food and beverage offerings as far as location goes. We're right on the beach so we can do some tasting events and in, in sort of uh, locations off the beaten path and sort of that exper experiential tourism side of things we were able to kind of focus on. So that is where I'm still currently hanging my hat. Um, so I spend, it's a seasonal property as well. So, um, you know, we're open May to October um, there at the resort. Um, so obviously that's where I spend my summers. And then during the winter, um, I got offered a position or was asked to come in and support in the winter of 2018, um, back to my old alma mater at the uh, Culinary Institute of Canada. So now I've been at the Culinary Institute as a faculty member for this is my third season or third winter. Um, obviously, it kind of works out perfect for me um, when the students are gone and all out on internship or graduating. Um, there's no students in the school, classes aren't going on is whenever I can slip out and head to my resort property for the summer and kind of play chef before I come back in um, in my role here at the Culinary Institute, um, supporting the students and the chef instructors uh, that are running the first year service classes. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about that transition or mindset from being an executive chef with employees to being a 
instructor, professor with students, because it's different. And I've hired a lot of faculty members, and sometimes they bring in that industry mindset, and I have to remind them, they're not your employees, they're your students. Yeah. And it's a different, you'll slow it down and don't do the work for them. But maybe you found something like that, or you want to speak to that? You know, it's funny that you bring this up, because it's a, it's a topic that um, is discussed quite a bit um, in a lot of different avenues of food service. And for me, as an executive chef and uh, instructor, I find zero difference, but the reason that I find zero difference is because I believe that when I'm in industry, as the executive chef of a kitchen, I am just that, an instructor. So my goal in the summer is to take my kitchen team and build them up, make them better than they were the day before, you know, give them the tools to succeed. One of the things I feel personally that chefs do um, is to cooks and, and people that are learning the industry is we tend, because it's it's so serious and so high paced, sometimes we can tend to oversee growth too critically to the point where that employee may be too scared to make a mistake or too scared to produce something because they're unsure of what the expectation is. My belief is that as a leader and as an executive chef, it's my job to be high enough above my staff so they have that room to grow. And, you know, if we're talking into the, you know, food side of things and food production, though, you know, my skills should be a warmth above my employees that allow my students to naturally grow on their own. Um, with my support. So I kind of take my mindset as an instructor into the actual industry with me because I feel like that's exactly what we do as chefs. We teach, we instruct. Um, I would love to be able to hire verbatim off the street and them to have all the skills that they need. But the reality is each kitchen is different and we're always going to have some type of training um, built into the professional kitchen. So for me, I don't find much of a difference at all because I have such a consciousness when I'm in industry to ensure that my cooks are receiving instruction and training day in, day out. Excellent. Spoken like a true teacher. That's the way I was when I was in industry. It was always like, try to, you know, promote from within. And I told everybody, you need to train the person behind you so I can move up. And that way there, you're always hiring like entry level and everybody moves up. And then the sous chef gets to a point where you're not going to get my job. So I'm going to help you find your first chef's job. And then you just keep the cycle going. Exactly. Right. Yes. Yes. And by osmosis, right. I mean, the true mark of a good chef, in my opinion, is, you know, Whenever you move on to a different establishment, the foundation shouldn't fall down around you. It should be, um, you should have the foundation already in place because that's your job as a chef, that they can continue on without you because you've, like I said, laid the groundwork for success. And that's the mark of a true chef in my eyes. And, and you know, um, somebody that really understands the industry is that ability to train everybody else up. Everyone moves one position. If the chef then were to step out, the business is still in the exact same situation. And it's because the skilled executive chef put the wheels in motion to make that happen. Right. Yeah, that's that's leadership right there. You know, you got yeah. it's a, a well-oiled machine. You can step out and don't have to worry about it because you know you did your job and everybody's trained and they feel comfortable even if they do make a mistake. Yeah. 
Yeah. So when I was hiring people, you obviously want to hire people from the industry because they're content experts. You don't want to hire a, yes. you know, an educator and then try to teach them how to be a chef. You hire a chef yeah. to teach them how to be an educator. But sometimes exactly. making that transition is hard for certain you know, chefs to make that. And that's because of their philosophy and mindset that they're bringing with them from the industry. Yeah. Uh, as you mentioned, it's, it's, it should be the same. So you are a teacher now, so I'm sure you're an influence to your students. They look up to you. Maybe you could mention who influenced you coming up. Could be personally, could be professionally. Maybe you could give a shout out to one, two, three, whatever that really had an impact on who you are today in, in your career. Um, you know, I, I consider myself a little bit of the student of, of the industry. So um, when I was coming up, and learning there was a, a large number of chefs that i revered um in canada and provincially that i you know have luckily enough been able to um work with or spend some time with and and because of that there's so many um people that have influenced my career the first one and um maybe the one that made the biggest impact initially for me was um i did my internship at uh the Inn at Bay Fortune, which was owned by Chef Michael Smith, but the actual uh, chef de cuisine at the time of my OJT was a young man named uh, Chef Warren Barr, who um, owns his own restaurant in Usulip, BC now, um, called Pluvio. At one time was the executive chef of the Wiccaninish Inn, which is a Relay and Chateau property here in BC. It's one of the most well-known large accommodation um, establishments in the country. So he moved on to um, Great Heights because he had great talent. At the time of him being here on the island, he was um, on the younger end of his career, still building his reputation. And spending the summer with Chef Warren at the inn um, changed my perspective big time. Um, he kind of put the finishing polish, I would say, on the chef that I was going to become by just slightly tweaking my mindset. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, simple things where he was the first one that kind of, you know, really put things out there in simple terms that really um, stick with you as a cook. You know, he always used to say flavor is important and obviously we're going to make sure everything tastes as great as it can. But the first thing we eat with is our eyes. And, you know, that was 12, 13 years ago. I probably repeat that sentence that he told me once a week to my students because it's the perfect example of when you're producing something obviously it has to taste good that's the most important part but it should look beautiful as well because the first thing we eat with is absolutely our eyes right so chef warren was a huge um influence and mentor for me and still to this day um i would still put him in that category um another one and a, you know an instructor here at the college and was an instructor of mine when i attended culinary school Chef Hans Andre. Chef Hans is a super unique background. Um, he's European, uh, European born and trained. Uh, chef moved to the uh, to Prince Edward Island in the '60s. Um, established a local restaurant here that was doing completely different style of food as to compared to everyone else at the time. You know, you've seen a lot of sort of fish and chip style restaurant kind of mom and pop diners um when chef hans came to pei he kind of brought that training with him so you were seeing classical french dishes here on the island for the first time and chef hans was actually one of the or the original chef instructor of the culinary institute of canada 
and he has virtually trained a province of chefs. Um, if I was to look at the faculty list of chef instructors here in this building, he has probably taught 75% of them. And wow. by nature, he is the most humble, kind human being that you will ever meet. Um, you will never get an opportunity to hear Chef Hans talk about himself, but the man probably isn't celebrated enough in the province for, like I said, essentially training a generation of chefs. The food culture here on Prince Edward Island is super old. Um, food has been around and been a part of our culture for years, but the restaurant scene here is super young. So it's kind of a unique combination where you have this, you know, food culture that goes back generations, but dining in restaurants doesn't go back near as far as food does culturally. So it's kind of a newer, um, kind of a newer idea or, or, you know, a newer, um, thing to engage in. Right. But like I said, Chef Hans is, is a chef that probably isn't celebrated enough eventually for what he's done here, but he's literally changed the path of what it means to be a restaurant on Prince Edward Island. So he would be another one that was a huge influence. And the final one that I would say is another local chef, um, Chef Irwin McKinnon. So Chef Irwin is, is someone that I really look up to because he's um, an Islander born and raised. For myself coming up, I always kind of felt like, am I really going to be able to be a successful chef? Everyone else that's a chef here on PEI seems like they're not from PEI. <laughs> it seems like they've gotten their experience elsewhere and have come to this beautiful location to open a restaurant. So he was someone I really looked up to because he had a very similar upbringing, you know, born in rural Prince Edward Island. His parents owned a large farm and he has um you know one canadian chef of the year atlantic chef of the year he's very well known in the canadian uh federation of culinary or cooks and chefs um he has a great reputation and for me chef Irwin has always been someone that i've looked up to because he's not a chef born in toronto he's not a chef born in some of these big centers where it seemed to me especially as a youngster that a lot of the, you know, trained um, professionals were coming from. He was someone that I could see myself hopefully becoming someday. And that was huge for me as a young cook. That's great. Good. So you just mentioned, uh, talked about, you know, you, your home cuisine there from your island, Prince Edward Island, and what the food is. And, and is it is it get the, the spotlight that it should get? And where do you see overall Canada's food scene evolving? So here on the island, um, I would say that we're a little unique in the sense because we have, for lack of a better term, this embarrassment of riches when it comes to all this, you know, premium seafood and shellfish that's available, all these great crops, whether it's, you know, potatoes or vegetables or, uh, you know, greenhouse items or lettuces. There's such a vast variety of products available and people doing industrial food production that I feel like it's almost, it almost seems normal to us because so many people are employed by these industries. But when, when you look in other places and other centers, these industries don't exist, right? So sometimes the ones that understand how special their product are the, is the least are the ones that are actually harvesting 
producing or growing the products. Because as I alluded to earlier, all these people don't do this because it's the cool thing to do because, you know, these are now in vogue items and they want a little bit of the spotlight. These people are farmers. These people are fishers because that's been bred into them. That gives them a part of their identity. And that's what food is on the island a little bit more than a showcase. It gives us a little bit into, it gives us a little bit of a picture into who we are as individuals, um, depending on our line of work, because there's not very many industries that are directly influenced by how much it rains the day before are we getting winds you're kind of at the mercy of a lot of variables and that develops you into a very adaptable individual and i think that the eclecticness that you see with our fishers and farmers and producers here on the island they're just because of that um you have to be you know you have to have a certain be a certain type of person to have the ability to roll with the punches and that is what our farmers and fishers do here day in and day out and probably better than um, anyone else professionally that I know. So you had abundance of these beautiful raw ingredients that other places don't have. They had to import them from you, but maybe took a little bit for granted that you had those products. You thought everybody had those and it didn't really get the spotlight. A hundred percent. You know, it's funny, like you said, if you're going to get a really high end like lobster, let's say in a, in a big center here in Ottawa or Toronto, it's getting shipped from the shipped from the East Coast. Whereas if I decide during lobster season that, oh, you know, it's Friday evening, you know, it'll be really good tomorrow. I'm going to have a few family members over and I'm going to have steam off some lobster and we'll have a barbecue. Well, if I need lobster, I'm probably going to go to my neighbor who's a fisherman and say, hey, can I get eight lobsters tomorrow? And he'll say, sure, meet me at 11 o'clock. And you'll meet, go down to the wharf to his birth. You'll meet him. You'll pay for the product. You'll go home. And you don't, you don't realize how unique that is. Um, right. I've taken hotel guests with me to purchase lobster from fishermen that are coming in to sell their catch just for that reason, because I understand to them, we are in the weirdest part of Canada where I can go to this random rural road that looks desolate. All of a sudden, I drive in. You can see the water, the coast. There's a bunch of buildings. There's cars. There's hundreds of people around. There's boats everywhere. And there's thousands of pounds of this premium shellfish product being you know, sold and shipped all across the country. But it's just normal here. So sometimes we don't think about it or celebrate it as much as we should. Yeah, that's so true. It reminds me of Maine. Maine's very similar in a lot of those rural areas. But So overall, looking at Canada as a whole, how do you see the food changing? Is it changing? Is it evolving? Is it, is it staying the same? And maybe how has this pandemic had an effect on it? I think that uh, we have seen, you know, Canadian cuisine as a whole evolve. I think if you would have said the term Canadian cuisine 10 years ago, I'm not sure that people would understand what you were referencing as well as they do now. But because our kind of food culture here in Canada is pretty young by comparison to some of the larger centers in Europe and, and you know, cities that have been around for numbers of years, the Maritimes in Prince Edward Island essentially was settled in the mid 1700s, really only populated in the early 1800s. So we have, you know, 200 plus years of food culture um, in Canada as a whole. And that's all we have to go on. So I think that 
what we've seen over the last decade or so is the sort of fruits of our labor of discovery over the first 200 years of Canadian cuisine has allowed us to understand what Canadian cuisine is. And to me, that is the melting pot of different cultures that are present throughout this country. And that is then, you know, an, an item is taken from a different different culture that may be prevalent in a certain part of Canada is adapted using the ingredients that are native to that area. And then those are showcased because that is the products that you can use at that time. Right. So I think Canadian cuisine, you're seeing um, it evolve because now we're understanding it a little bit more. It doesn't, Canadian cuisine is never going to stand alone in the same way that let's say a French cuisine does because of the history there and how it was developed. But I think what Canadian cuisine um, is in the midst of right now is a little bit of character development where understanding those little individualized pockets of culture throughout, you know, the country coast to coast um, that have been developed over time and adjusted and played with are now becoming Canadian items or Canadian um, restaurants, for lack of a better term. You mentioned the native products and how it, it's evolving. Where is the it, it, does the indigenous people, the natives of, of the land, is, is their cuisine or their product, is that coming into this growth as you see it? Yeah, that definitely um, it is. And one thing that I've found a lot of people don't realize is in the maritime specifically, um, because initially when or, you know um, pioneers were coming to populate our area, they weren't coming um, and staying for long periods of time with large amounts of um, settlers, for lack of a better term. They were often coming in small groups for the fishing season, getting a little bit of uh, value from the products that they were catching, taking it back to wherever they were from. Um, and kind of wintering there. So naturally in the Maritimes um, and the Mi'kmaq um, Native American people that are um, present in this area, their food history has kind of, in my opinion, naturally found its way into maritime food culture because they were, you know, the first pioneers and settlers were interacting you know shoulder to shoulder with the Mi'kmaq people and in a they were trading and yeah trading and, and in a lot of ways um respecting that this was their land and this was their area and learning from the natives as well um we didn't see obviously if we're getting right into history there was civil unrest between you know different um, groups of settlers and the Native Americans. And that doesn't mean that the Maritimes and PEI specifically um, wasn't a part of that. But by and large, um, the cohesion of the early pioneers and the Native Americans here on Prince Edward Island would be at a higher degree than you would have seen um, over the you know prior years. Because let's face it, the people that were coming to settle these maritime provinces were not the, you know, um, well-to-do members of societies um, from England or France, right? These are, you know, for lack of a better term, the people that are doing the same types of jobs in their country, looking for a better life and trying to build one for them. So they're not coming over and expecting 
to utilize these people in a certain way, they're looking for support as much as anything. Yeah, right. Okay, so before we wrap up, though, what advice would you give to someone wanting to pursue a career, you know, similar to yours, wanting to get into culinary arts, wanting to thinking about going to culinary school? Someone that you know came up to you and asked for some advice or some guidance. What would you What would you say to them? Um, I think there's a couple things. So anytime a young person or someone potentially approaches me and is interested in going into the profession. I usually tell them the first thing you should do is a little bit of research, right? Don't go into something just because you've seen a cooking show once and it's, you know, seems like it's kind of cool and it may be something that you want to dive into. I would take a little bit more of a look into the industry as a whole, um, what you can expect to ensure that you know what it means to be a cook because sometimes in the food network world we live in it doesn't sort of paint a true picture of what life in the professional kitchen is going to look like as far as advice for culinary students um or someone looking to have the best opportunity to grow as a cook um either during their education or after I think the best advice I can give is sometimes, and especially early on in your career, money is great. And obviously, we all need to make sure that we're being um, compensated in a fair way. However, my advice for students is the early part of your culinary career shouldn't be spent seeking out the position that pays an extra dollar, dollar fifty, because the reality is. If you have an establishment that's paying a little extra than the average of the market that it's located in, there's a reason that it has to pay more than the average in that market. The second part of the same point is early on in your career, often um, there's different circumstances for different individuals, but often that's the point where you have the least responsibilities monetarily. So you may be able to survive pretty easily on 30, let's say $40 a week less than the infamous job we just discussed that's paying the dollar, dollar fifty more. I think the focus early on in your career for students should be going to work for somebody that's leading a kitchen that you think you can learn skills from and continue your growth. If you search out those individuals and those chefs and focus on that for your first, you know, three, four, five years at a culinary school. After the fifth year of you seeking out those chefs, you will be shocked at the growth that you've undergone. And by that point, for many, you will have sort of plateaued to the point where you are looked at as somebody that may be ready to take the next step because you've gotten the training at such a high level from chefs that you believe could show you the necessary techniques to get you to the stage you want to be at as a cook or as a chef. Great advice. Yeah, that that's so true what you said there and that, that, that they look don't look at the dollar. Don't chase the dollar. Look for the experience at first and it, it'll, it'll pay off in the long run. Yeah, exactly. The, the dollars will come if you lay the foundation. So you'll get them then, but lay the foundation first because that's how you're going to earn 
that high monetary um, dollar amount at the end of your career, right, is by laying that strong foundation. So determine who is going to help you lay that and seek those people out. Yeah. So where can listeners connect with you online or if someone wanted to reach out to you, follow you, get more advice, something, ask another question that maybe was sparked in this interview? How could they reach you? All right. So um, uh, the best way to reach me is probably through uh, the social media platform, Instagram. Um, So I have an online following there and a presence, which I'm online fairly often. So my Instagram account handle is at Chef Jesse Mac, J-E-S-S-E-M-A-C. As well, I have a Facebook page um, that I can be contact with or contacted through as well at Chef Jesse McDonald on the social media platform Facebook. Um, as well, I can be found um, online via email at jmcdonald at rodvacations.com in case um, anyone listening has any additional questions about um, Prince Edward Island as a whole or potentially what a summer on the island as a cook may look like. Great. And I will put that all in the show notes. So if anyone's listening and can catch it, uh, they can go back and they'll see those links and can click on those and, and, and reach out to you. And, and, and we appreciate that. Okay. Sounds good. Well, that is just about all the time we have for this episode. And I want to first thank you, Jesse, for coming on the show today and sharing your culinary school story with all of us. We really appreciate your time and your honesty and your sincerity and all the advice that you gave to us. Perfect. Thanks. It was a pleasure to be on. Thanks so much for having me. All righty. Take care. Bye-bye now. All right. Thank you. And a big thanks and appreciation also goes out to all of you, the listeners. We hope you enjoy the show and this episode. You all are a big part of this show, so please let us know what you think. Your comments are always welcome, and they help us in making the best show possible. You can email them to culinaryschoolstories at gmail.com. That's culinaryschoolstories at gmail.com. Or even leave us a voicemail at area code 207-835-1275. That's area code 207 207- 835-1275. And if you like the show, we have a big ask of all of you, and that is to share the podcast with everyone you know and to give us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, until our next Culinary School Story, take care and be well. Bye-bye. Culinary School Stories is a proud member of the Food Media Network.